0: this episode was brought to you by our patreon supporters greg bench trey whetstone amy swan gilman joel robertson and ooh blake from midweek matinee thank you all now on to the episode
1: welcome to episode 56 of father and son watch horror movies i am your co-host the father AKA Pastor Matt, AKA Matt Rawlings, and I am joined as always by my trusty sidekick, Jackson the Sun, and welcome to our Gentos Blue Period. <laughs> so, we are a spoiler podcast, we do spoil the movies we discuss. And on this episode, we are continuing our tribute to the great Dario Argento on the month of his 80th birthday. Today, we are skipping ahead a bit. We had planned to tackle Suspiria, but we're gonna go hold off on that and do and analyze a 90s flick from the Italian great, the 1996 film, The Stendhal Syndrome.
2: In 1817, the French
1: writer Stendhal was in Florence. He was admiring the works of art when he was overcome by powerful emotions.
2: Paintings seem to be floating. It was as if I I was suddenly immersed in it.
1: You like me, don't you? Symptoms include a cold sweat, anxiety, hallucinations.
2: It makes me feel alive. Ah!
1: That's why what happened to you in the Uffizi is known as... The Stendhal syndrome. From trauma, of course. And we're going to need help to cover this bad boy. So we made a call to the frozen tundra of our northern neighbors and asked Big Bill Van Vagel to jump in. How are you, Bill?
2: I am doing great. I am really looking forward to this one. Uh, my background to this movie is I'd heard so much about it over the years. And it was just one of those things where I just didn't get to it, didn't get to it. So this seemed like a really good excuse to dive in, give it a look. And I've watched it twice in the past week. And so I'm curious to see what everybody has to say about it. So this was this week was the first time you've seen it? Yes, it was. Uh, my friend Jay Wall, I know, really enjoys the film. And uh, I've heard about Argento's end of his last few movies. And I thought I'd heard about this being probably the last big quality film of his. So I really wanted to kind of dive in and kind of see what he had to offer.
1: Gotcha.
0: And so, Jackson, what about you? When did you first see the Stendhal syndrome? Today. Today was my first viewing of this. First time ever hearing about it actually was earlier uh, on last week when you told me that Bill wanted to cover this. Um, you know, it seems like a lot of Argento's work after the 80s flew under my radar. Uh, I knew that he was still alive and working, but, you know, it just didn't intrigue me. And I am very glad that you recommended this to us instead of doing Suspiria because this gave me a a whole new perspective on Argento as a filmmaker. I got into that rhythm of like, oh, he's just this guy doing giallos. And then we get into this movie and it is totally different. There's like supernatural stuff uh, and it's just very depressing. And uh, (laughs) yeah, there's a reason I called this Argento's Blue Period. This is a devastating movie. Um, But that just speaks to to how impactful it is.
1: Yeah. And if folks haven't seen it, they, you know, uh, definitely track it down. I know it's on YouTube right now. Um, Who knows how long that lasts. But the IMDb synopsis, if you haven't seen it, reads a young policewoman slowly goes insane while tracking down an elusive serial rapist slash killer through Italy when she herself becomes a victim of the brutal man's obsession that's actually not bad for IMDb, is it, guys?
2: Well, no, no, that's pr- that's pretty darn good as far as they went. It must have been somebody above grade seven that wrote this. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's rare. <laughs> they called in one of their parents to get it done, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's jump in and talk about the screenplay and the plot. Uh, we have Aja Argento-, Argento playing Detective Anna Manning. We learned that she suffers from Stendhal syndrome, which I was unaware of was a thing. Uh, it apparently is, a condition that produces panic attacks when faced with objects of great beauty. Uh, This condition allows the serial killer to abduct her, assault her. She's traumatized by it. She's eventually re-abducted but seemingly kills her attacker, yet she believes she is getting phone calls from him. Her boyfriend ends up dead. Her psychiatrist becomes suspicious. We'll talk about the ending in a
2: minute, but Bill, I take it this one had you engaged throughout? Well, this one had me engaged. Well, it's an interesting way of watching it because the first hour and 25 minutes or so is, I wouldn't say it's straightforward, but you can kind of follow the plot. And then you can almost break it out into part two after about tw- an hour 25 for the last 25 minutes, where kind of, I wouldn't say it veers left or right, but it, it's almost a second part to the story. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily your linear X to Y story. At any point,
0: but mm. you can almost put it into two distinct sections.
1: Hmm. Interesting, Jackson. What about you?
0: Uh, I was very confused when this movie started. Uh, <laughs> it starts out really trippy. Uh, like our protagonist, Anna, right? She's she's in this museum. She hits her head and hallucinates like a giant. What is it? Like a big trout that she then mm-hmm. makes out with underwater. Yes. Uh, and you have to understand this. Again, we're we're recording this between our coverage of like seventies Argento. Um, and I just came off Cat and Nine Tails and Deep Red, and now Argento is directing his daughter to make out with, like, a big carp underwater, uh, and then uh, then out of nowhere we get a CGI insert shot of pills going down her trachea, and then we get paintings turning into, like, doorway portals, so you can imagine how confused I was, uh, but once I was into it, I was very engaged, uh, th- the mystery of this, of this serial killer and rapist was, like, really harrowing, and I w- I was very engaged. Um, It felt almost more like a straightforward, it felt a little bit like Seven to me, but it was a little bit more personal than Seven because uh, the main character was directly connected to uh, the criminal. But yeah, I was very engaged all the way through. I thought the screenplay was very well written. Of course, it was based on a novel, but I don't know how much of it is a direct adaptation because it just says, you know, inspired by the novel, but then Dario Argento wrote the story. So it very well may have just been the Stendhal syndrome itself. I don't know if Bill knows anything about that. The
2: the only thing I know about is doing some research is that before we get into more of what is the Stendhal syndrome kind of thing is that Argento apparently when he was a kid his parents had gone to Athens and he was climbing the steps of the Parthenon and getting all the beauty of the architecture and the art there and he, he swears he felt this phenomenon and when he went back and in 1989 when the book about the Stendhal syndrome came out he was like Ah, that's a connection to something I had earlier in life. Let's write a movie about that sort of phenomenon or a crime that revolves around that sort of uh scientific and medical phenomenon.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea that this um condition even existed. And the first time I saw this, I think I saw this on VHS back in like maybe ninety-seven, ninety-eight, um, when I was finishing up college. And Uh, I remember thinking, "Oh, Argento just created this." I didn't, you know, this was pre, you know, Wi-Fi, and so I didn't even look it up. But this is a real thing, and yeah, yeah, so that shocked me. So, but that it makes sense now that you connect those dots—that you know, him kind of having some kind of childhood trauma and and referring back to it—that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this goes back to eighteen seventeen. Hmm. There was there was a French author named Marie Henri Bayel who was in the uh what was it the Basilica of Santa Croce in Florence and she was admiring the beauty and the architecture and the surroundings and it hit her she got weak shaky legs you know you start sweating and gasping and she documented it and then in 1979 going ahead 160 years Dr. Graziella Margarini, an Italian psychiatrist, started documenting all of these one, about 100 or so tourists who came to Florence and started getting gasping of breath and, and visual hallucinations and falling and all these things were hitting them. And she wrote a book about it. Huh. And it, it was called I just got it written down here. uh uh, based on a 79 investigation where she studied 100 cases of tourists feeling symptoms such as sweating palpitations hot flashes terror emotional tension and exhaustion Uh, these occur in some tourists when viewing beautiful arts in all forms paintings sculptures architecture design she wrote a book in 1989 basically called the stendhal syndrome and that's the book when the psychiatrist in the movie picks it up. That's the book.
0: Oh, hmm. okay. So it's, it's it's Argento getting a little meta there.
2: Yeah. It's, it's him seeing who's of the higher crust of the viewer seeing, Oh, I know that book.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, so. wow. Huh.
1: Okay. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea. Um, but that's, that's really cool. Now going back to something you said, Jackson, um, it's a little weird to have your daughter make out with a carp. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, I will give you that. <laughs> um, it, it beats John Borman putting his daughter in naked in Excalibur, but um, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a bit strange. I did read up that that carp that they were dragging that carp, they actually shot that in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> practical filmmaking
2: but but i did also hear it was being uh maneuvered by uh wires
1: yes yes they had uh and apparently they got it in in one or two takes because it didn't uh it quit working after a little while but they did shoot it in the sea and and uh, so i'm not so sure i'd put my daughter in the sea to shoot something like that it sounds just a little bit dangerous but uh Yeah, the Argentos don't exactly strike me from some of their, um, some of the things I've heard about all of them. They don't strike me exactly as, you know, emotional health on Parade. So, um, (laughs) we'll just let that go. Um, what else about the plot, um, do you want to talk about here? We'll talk about the twist ending, as I really want to know if you guys saw that coming, the quote-unquote twist ending, but, um what about bill did you find any of it suspenseful engaging yeah but were was it ever did you ever find yourself like okay this is hitchcock level suspense or scary or just or just engaging
2: i i found it more engaging than suspenseful i i will say this i did want to know how it played out mm-hmm. but but knowing from the first five minutes of the film i knew it wasn't gonna be a uh, hitchcockian or even a brian de palma it was gonna be more david lynch Ah, yeah. Be, because just the way it's constructed, I mean, it starts off in the first five minutes. She, she's at the art gallery in Florence and she gets, hears the sounds and the visuals of all the paintings. And then she jumps into the painting. You knew that Alfred Hitchcock, even on his worst days, wasn't going to do something like that. So, but you yeah. did want to know what was going on because when you find out, as we'll go along and talk about who the protagonist, the antagonist, their interactions, you mm-hmm. knew stuff was going to happen along the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Jackson,
0: what about you? Suspense or just engaged or what did you think? I thought it was scary. I thought it was suspenseful. Uh, the couple opening scenes with Anna's first interactions with uh, the antagonist or the, the would-be antagonist. Uh, well, I guess he's the antagonist of the first act. Um,
2: mm-hmm. He
0: is absolutely terrifying that just his blatant disregard for human life really really freaked me out but um definitely i, I would i definitely felt very uncomfortable i would say more than anything in the horror scenes i felt very uncomfortable knowing that uh that argento himself was directing his daughter in those scenes i felt yes. a little uncomfortable with that but uh, yeah. then again uh, Ar- Aja Argento has proven that she's not afraid to do anything in film, I think. Uh, so she probably was, was not backing off from that. And uh, that's something I actually respect. So Aja Argento was like 20, right? And imagine reading mm-hmm. the screenplay with all the stuff you have to do in this. I don't know if I'd be able... I mean, they had a bunch of different actors turn it down or were not available for it. So I guess she just jumped right into it. But... Um, yeah, I did find it scary. I did find it suspenseful. Perhaps not as suspenseful as more of his like straight out horror films. Mm. Um, but I was, I was intrigued as Bill said, I did want to see how it played out and I did not see the ending coming.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about the ending. Cause I, I want to talk about the characters and the cast here in a minute, but let's talk about the ending. Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest. There, there was a point where this movie hit, um, where that's when I was like, oh, okay, I know how this is going to end. And the only reason that, to go ahead and give a spoiler alert, I, the only reason the Stendhal syndrome, I enjoy it, I like it, I'm going to give it a good review, but it's not quite up there with, like, deep red for me, was I did see the ending coming. Um, it just seemed like, okay, he's got this, she's going through this, she's traumatized, and then we have her confrontation with uh, Thomas Kretschmann's character Alfredo Grossi um, as the killer. And then after that happened, I was like, okay, I see where this is going. And that was me. But Jackson, you're saying that that was not you.
0: No, it was totally out of left field. Now, there were warning signs that you, you, sh- that yeah. probably on second viewing, you would have picked up on. One of which is the fact that she dons a blonde wig. Uh mm-hmm. Which seems to harken back to uh, her abuser, her, you know, the. it seems like she from that point was mentally damaged. Because if you'll notice, after the fact, after she kills uh, Alfredo, she seems surprisingly calm, like when the uh, ambulance people are attending to her. The only thing she seems concerned about is, is this scar on my face ever going to heal? That's the only question she asks. So th- there were warning signs to begin with, but... Uh, The big twist did take me by surprise. I was expecting the red herring, uh, as it turns out, the red herring to be the actual twist. And I was like, oh, okay, come on, Argento. But then when the real uh, reveal was put on display, I I was floored.
2: I I was going to say, I kind of caught that right away when at the beginning she was going through her purse and she couldn't remember who she was. Mm -hmm. I kind of thought that kind of foreshadowed where it was going to go.
1: Do you, yeah, do you, okay? There is an early 80s slasher film that was remade. Um, and this second time seeing it, I remember thinking, boy, it's, I wonder if it's vice versa. I'd have to go back and look at the original. No, I think because it's, it's been a while, there's a little bit of a My Bloody Valentine thing going on.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Do, do the that Harry Warden thing attacking, and then somebody. Spoiler alert, we've already covered My Bloody Valentine, but if you haven't seen My Bloody Valentine, you know, uh, skip ahead 30 seconds, where one of the people attacked by Harry Warden ends up becoming Harry Warden. Well,
2: the the other film I made an immediate connection to was Jacob's Ladder, Uh, which which was Mm -hmm. 1990. And I mean, it's not the same storyline, but there are some very similar elements to it. And yeah. I would say that Argento, I wouldn't say he was copying it anyway, because Argento is his own thing. But I would say there isn't an influence or a slight homage to Jacob Ladder in this film.
0: Yes, totally. I felt like Jacob Ladder very much influenced it, especially the hallucinations and how you're not really sure what's real or what's fake. Okay. Um, definitely did feel like that, just an exploration of how trauma influences a person's life
1: yeah yeah I can see that. I can see that. and so, and I if memory serves Jacob's ladder was actually a decent hit in Europe, where it just kind of did okay here. so that 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 may be. so all right, all right, so I saw it i I you know, saw it coming just because I thought as soon as that happened with her going, slowly going crazy, I thought it would be, it would be too neat for Argento to bring Alfredo back in it just seemed like that was too neat something else had to happen so when we get the reveal it just it 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 didn't floor me as much as i think argento possibly wanted it to um but i was still i was still following along i still wanted to see but all right anything else about the plot before we move on to the cast and the characters
2: uh no i'm just saying this would be a tough one if it was for me when i was taking notes as i was watching because it was all over the place Yes. So. It's As I said, it's not a linear film. It's not one that you might necessarily show uh, this is for Jackson. They won't show this your first two weeks of film school. I guarantee you that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure.
2: It's one of those. But once you kind of get into it, I really dug into it after about the first five minutes.
1: Yeah, and the the comparison that you brought up, Bill, I think is apt looking back on it. it. It is very Lynchian. It's very kind of... Uh, Blue Velvet-esque in that, you know, okay, at the heart of, like, Lynch's Blue Velvet is a pretty straightforward kind of crime film. Uh, but then, of course, you've got all this crazy crap going on around it, you know, whether it's the shots of the ants, you know, right below the lawn and all that other kind of stuff. so And there's definitely, I think, an influence there. Um, the cast, Jackson, you brought it up. Um, Mr. Argento's daughter was not his first pick, <laughs> mm-hmm. not his second pick. <laughs> um, he wanted Bridget Fonda, couldn't get her, um, wanted Jennifer Jason Lee, couldn't get her. I'm not so sure I'd be real happy about being daddy's third choice. I think I'd be a little uh, upset about that. But go ahead, Bill.
2: I was going to say, I also heard uh, Daryl Hannah may have had been asked or was mentioned as possibly playing this role as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that would have been interesting.
1: Yeah, I can. Well, I can see Bridget Fonda or Jennifer Jason Leigh in this role. I mean, Mm -hmm. just based upon some of the other stuff they've done, whether it's Bridget Fonda in Point of No Return or, you know, single white female or Jennifer Jason Leigh in Single White Female or Eyes of a Stranger or whatever. They've been in some pretty brutal films. So and I can see them playing this character, but I'm not so sure as them as Bridget Fonda or Jennifer Jason Leigh being Italian. Um, but you know, whatever. What did you guys think of
2: her performance as a detective, Bill? Uh, I thought it was credible. Um, she, w- she did seem a tad on the young side for this role, but mm-hmm. like, like, she didn't seem like that hardened police officer that, you know, has the years of experience. But on the other hand, if she was too far old, I don't think it would have played into the rape revenge style, uh, storyline. So, you know, honestly, I think if somebody was maybe three to four years older, it would have given it a little bit more credence. Yeah. But I honestly, I honestly think she probably gave as much as she could.
0: Yeah, Jackson, what about you? Uh, listen, okay, uh, I thought she was pretty good. She was, she was, she was above average. Uh, I, I again, yeah, I, I agree that she was a little young. I was very surprised that she was a police officer. That that kind of took me by surprise when that that came into play. I was like, really? All these people are like thirty years older than her, but. Um, yeah, I, I think her performance was all right. Now, the strength in her performance for me comes from her facial acting, because she's got these very, like, easy to read uh, expressions where you can kind of sympathize with her and you've got, like, an anchor in every scene she's in. Uh, but uh, yeah, the main reason I commend her performance is because the stuff she had to go through in this movie, it's just so extreme. I didn't enjoy watching it, and I'm sure it wasn't fun being on that set, uh, but it's all in the pursuit of art, I guess. You know, I'm sure she
1: didn't have a good time kissing the carp in the Mediterranean Sea. No, you know, that 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 had to be rough. But I, yeah, Jackson, you picked up on something. The reason I don't mind her in this role, I, I was I was willing to go along with it. I thought the same thing Bill did. I was like, you know, she looks in her early 20s, and, and how many people in their early 20s are detectives? I mean, usually you're talking at least 30. And so that bothered me a little bit, but... What I like in her performance is, as you brought up, Jackson, her facial expressions. I, I sympathize with her when I was supposed to sympathize with her. And then when it's revealed that her trauma has turned her into her own abuser and a murderer, I bought that as well. And I think she sold it. What do you think, Bill?
2: I was going to say she does have that ability to have you empathize with her really well. Mm-hmm. Like, like you do feel for her and oh, yeah. she, ha- she has a certain vulnerability that I think somebody who would have been 35, you wouldn't have quite felt the same way about. Mm-hmm. And And let's be brutally honest here, gentlemen. One of the reasons she works is she's gentle on the eyes. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and there is a portion of the audience that, I don't think they're going to go see it because of that, but it sure doesn't hurt.
1: (laughs) Yeah. She's never been, you know, she's never been up my alley. She's never been the kind of type that I like, but yeah, she's not, she is not an unattractive human being
0: to be sure. Now, here's uh-huh. the thing for me. Here's the thing for me. She looks like her dad a little bit, and that kind of throws me off. <laughs> it's her nose and her eyes, and I'm like, that looks like Dario Argento. I'm, I, now I have to take a step back, but yeah, it, it, she is definitely cast. She looks good on the poster, for sure. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. Depending on which
1: poster you look at, because I saw that Letterboxd had an interesting poster I hadn't seen before. Oh, wow.
0: Okay, I just pulled it up on Letterboxd. Did you just pull
1: it up? That See is explicit. I mean? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm hoping that Dario did not commission that. I'm hoping that that's some, you know, some uh, person in the marketing department or whatever, you know, studio did this.
2: But I was going to say, the other point I really thought about was, if you know Asia Argento and the film she's done, she's not one to be afraid to show nudity. Right. Top and top or bottom. She'll do what it takes to further the story, so they say. But in this film, when there were, were lots of opportunities to show nudity in scenes where it would naturally occur, they didn't.
1: Right. Yeah, that was my point earlier about John Borman. It was like, you know, I I always thought that was weird. I don't know how you can shoot a family member nude on a film set. Because I've told people, it's like, you know, when I sit down and I I talk as a pastor, sometimes I'll talk with people about whatever they're struggling with or whatever. And, you know, I always tell people, I don't, you know, I don't struggle with watching horror movies, whether it's the nudity or the violence. Uh, The violence has never bothered me. The nudity doesn't bother me either, because partly, even though it does kind of take me out of the story a little bit in this sense, I've been on film sets where there has been partial nudity. And it's a little weird to stand there with like 30 people, many of them, you know, sitting there with donut stains on their hands and all that kind of stuff, staring at some poor 19, 20 year old, you know, who's having to walk around with her butt cheeks hanging out or something like that. It's it's kind of uncomfortable and it always kind of takes me out of it. But I'm kind of glad Dario did not go that route here. First of all, it have been weird with his daughter. But second of all, I don't think you needed it because. The scene, especially that first abduction scene, you know, the abduction scenes, they're brutal enough.
2: Oh, and, and, I, I don't think I'll ever think of a razor blade the same way. Oh, oh my gosh.
1: gosh. Uh, it's just, you know, the, it's very brutal. And so, you know, i I've, and i and here's my other problem sexual assault, Gilman, Joel, and I have this in common. its It really bothers me. I mean, and, and not just in the sense of like, Look, some things will bother me on film, like one of the things I cannot stand uh, would Fulci does the eye thing or, you know, I have this thing about, um, I know Dr. Shock has talked, he has this thing about uh, baseball bats with spikes through them, that that just freaks him out. You know, it, it, for me, razor blades freak me out. It, you know, the only part of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 that freaks me out is when Bill Mosley is chasing Stretch with a razor blade and just slicing at her thighs. That's just that, that I can't stand that. But but sexual assault, it just really churns my stomach. And too often you get something like I spit upon your grave or I can't even remember the Monica Bellucci, the film.
2: I was going to say the house at the end of the park. Yeah, the of the park. yes. Those those
1: films at times, I think they they border. They go from being brutal
0: and making their point to exploitative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that's something for as as depressing and disturbing as this movie is. I don't think it ever crosses into ex, like exploitation. Everything is shown for a reason to like further the insanity of this movie. It's never just to be like, look at this. Isn't this weird?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I cannot rewatch the original. I spit upon your grave. I just, you know, it it goes on for like 20 minutes. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. And so, you know, this, I did not think handled that way. I thought it was, it was brutal. It was traumatic. It made me flinch, but it didn't make me feel like, okay, now I need a shower just from watching it.
2: No, it, It was gritty. It was tough, but it wasn't over the top. Exactly. Exactly. And so,
1: and this goes back to, like I said, to her care. I thought she did just a, a great job. But the other person we need to talk about Thomas Kretschmann as Alfredo Grossi. Um, man, oh man, oh man, is this
2: guy a scumbag? <laughs> He's a scumbag, but he played it so, so well. Oh, yeah. I, and he got rave reviews, you know, for
1: his performance um it doesn't surprise me though that he often got typecast for the next 10 years playing nazis um you know because he's you can see it Uh, even though if you want to see him play a little softer or whatever go watch peter jackson's king kong which he's in he's in blade 2 um but yeah he he got a lot of critical acclaim for his portrayal and i think it was well deserved because it's not easy roles to 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 pull off what do you think jackson
0: yeah, I thought he was great. You love to hate him. Uh, he he does seem really slimy and like a, like a grease ball. Um, and I was glad to see him get his comeuppance. Now I do have to ask: Do you think he got his comeuppance, or or do you think part of that was imagined by Anna? I've heard a lot of people say that they think this is all allegorical, but I'm not so sure about that. No,
1: I think I think they made it pretty clear that they found his body. Right. I I think that's the whole reason that if I remember correctly, the psychiatrist goes over and right, right. The red herring. Yeah. Probably should not have, but um, no, but I, you know, I bought it. No, I, I, I think he was definitely dead and that she just flipped the switch and, and, and became the killer. That's That's how I read it. Didn't you, Bill?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I thought I I took it, this part of it, I took literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, I thought that, Everything happened. I mean, it did have a little bit of that rape revenge feel at the end when she's kicking him and he's over the waterfall and stuff like it. Mm-hmm. You, almost, you almost got that spit on your grave kind of feel to it. But right. I, I had actually about an hour ago, I went over Kreitzman's IMDB page and you're right. He went from everything from, it, it seems he must have done 15 period pieces and 10 of them were yes. World War II as Germans. But, yeah, but he I,
1: plays plays a Nazi over and over again. I remember I him in Valkyrie. I mean, yeah, he has a lot of them. Yeah,
2: yeah, he did one. Uh, uh, I I actually found on YouTube called Stalingrad, the Battle mm-hmm. of Stalingrad, and it's like a two and a half hour epic. I think it's in French. But another reason he gets a lot of work is I think he speaks German, French, Italian, English. Like he's he's wow. in, done a lot of TV work, and then he does a voice in Cars too. So he's, he's,
1: you know. To go from working as a Nazi to, yeah, to Cars, too, to working for Pixar. yeah, yeah it,
2: it, To go from being a, a, a hired killer to being in The Pianist. yeah like He obviously has a bit of range. Eh? Yeah, but, absolutely. And it's good on him for not following that Dolph Lundgren valley he could have traveled. Right, 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 right. He, he kind of went all over. So I think this guy, I mean, when you first look at him, you're like, I don't know that name. But when you delve into him. He's been in a lot of good quality entertainment.
1: Yeah, I I it took me a second. I was like, I know the face. I did the same thing. I went to IMDB and oh yeah, he was in Blade Two. Oh yeah, he was in Resident Evil. Oh yeah, he was in Valkyrie. And then it all kind of fell together. But yeah, those, you know, I have great respect for character actors like that who can just pull off that wide range of roles over that many. Years, I have a lot of respect for them. So I was gonna
2: say that's why I always like doctors like Brian Dennehy and Ned yes. Beatty, like those kind of guys that could just jump in, do their role, you believe them, and then on to the next.
1: On the next, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I yeah, I agree, absolutely agree. So, all right, what about Marco Leonardi as? And again, Jackson and I have had this discussion in the last couple of podcasts, Bill, about Argento's not much for being real creative with character names. So Marco Leonardi plays. Marco. (laughs) 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 Wow. And that's not the first time Jackson and I have
0: noticed this in an Argento film, is it, buddy? No. uh, The past two films, at least one of the characters, or he's reused characters. I remember we talked about the fact that in Cat of Ninetales, there's a character named like Carlo Longevi, and then in the next movie, there's two different characters named Carlo and Longevi. So it's like, he just reused the (laughs) name. Yeah, he's he's not one for being like, i really going to make this believable. They're characters.
2: They're they're distant cousins, all in the same...
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but it is, it's... The, the Argento Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yes, but it's, so. but
2: it's funny. With, with Marco, I, again, I went over his IMDb. I went through all these in the last hour or so. And he's been in Cinema Paradiso. Yep. Uh, like Water for Chocolate. Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But yep. the one I was most curious about is he played Maradona. In Maradona, the Hand of God. Hmm. And if anybody remembers the 1986 world cup, I remember it very well. And Maradona scores a goal where he goes to head the ball, but his hand is above his head and it goes off. The hand goes in, it's the game winning goal and they can't disallow it because there's no replay back in 86, right? Oh, and so they go, I think they go on to the semifinals of the world cup on that goal. And so it's a very infamous goal. And when you look at him, you know, he's situated the same way. He's slightly chubby. He's about the same size. He would have been perfect. He probably had to put on a few pounds, but he would have been brilliant. But I thought he did a decent role. And it has one of the weirdest sex pseudo sex scenes yeah. <laughs> in a movie oh. I've ever seen involving him.
1: Yeah, it's it's odd. Yeah, I liked him. I thought he was I thought he did a fine job. Jackson, what, what do you think of Marco as Marco?
0: Yeah, he was good. He didn't stand out to me. Um, I do think he had more to do in the beginning when he was more closely tied with Anna. But by the end, he's just kind of her, like, guardian angel. He's just kind of partially there, partially not. He kind of fades in and out of the story. Um, I really think that they did him dirty at the end. Uh, They really just disposed of his character really quick. But, um, you know, whatever, shock value... The one that really struck me, and I don't know if you, if you want to talk about this this guy, go for it. Luigi DiBerti, Berti, uh, uh, also in The Psychic, a Fulci movie. Yep. Um, which was an interesting tie. I mean, we did those those Fulci. We didn't cover The Psychic, but um, yeah, so he's worked in in Italian horror cinema before, but that was a while before this. Uh, that's a,
2: but that's a weird film.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh it's
2: yeah, a, it's a weird one. But I, I've noticed that connection too. But he mainly has done. I think European films and TV. I don't think he's done a lot in North America. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
1: I thought he was. I thought he was really good, and it's it surprised me. And we've Bill, Jacks, and I have also talked about this before. This is the third episode. You know, we've got with Argento with these next two dropping this week, and one of the things we've noticed is Argento likes to work with people who seem to, you know, he likes to have an international cast in those first like top two or three roles, but then he gets people from theater and and Italian TV and so forth, Mm -hmm. who I think are absolutely excellent. I mean, Jackson, we had this talk with Trey Whetstone. How good was the guy who played Carlo in Deep Red, but he barely does any other films after that. He just goes back to the theater.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, it seems like he wants to build up a supporting cast full of, like, relative unknowns just to make it more believable, because you may have seen the main characters before in other things, but you he can guarantee you haven't seen the supporting cast. So that believable, you know, aspect to it really ties the whole cast together. And uh, yeah, he seems to find these people. I don't know if Argento has scouts that go out and watch plays and, and TV and stuff, or maybe he just does it himself, but he does seem to find these small working actors that, that really fill a role perfectly. He, he seems to have a good sense about that. Then again, it doesn't seem to me like Argento is a good actor-director necessarily on set. He's more of a technical guy. But uh, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's pretty good at putting together a crew and cast. Well, and maybe that's why, you know,
1: maybe he's got a casting director that that's exactly what they're thinking. We better find really solid character actors to fill in, you know, the rest of the uh, the roles because Argento hasn't been known as a great actor's Mm -hmm. director. He doesn't communicate a lot about your motivation and your backstory and and so forth. He's more about
0: the shot. Sort of like Hitchcock in that way. Or the actors read what's on the script. You know, it's not really about that. It's about the cool stuff that's happening on screen.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but even though Kitchcock did have a couple moments where he regretted not paying a little more attention to the actors, John Gavin and Psycho being one of them. But jump on in here, Bill.
2: I was just going to say, the other part of it that I think we're dancing around is, from a budgetary standpoint, it makes sense. Get these guys you never heard of, right? So Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll work for scale or just above scale, knowing being in... And Argento film will get your name all over.
1: Yeah, but it's not. But, you know, one of my points is it's not like you're I think you're exactly right. But I think the casting director watching, you know, as we have Jackson, and I have watched all these Argento movies. And it's not uncommon for the supporting cast to outshine the lead cast. And so whoever he's got doing this, whether it's Jackson, like you said, maybe it's himself or maybe he's just got a great casting director who, who fills it out. I just always think I, I can't remember an Argento movie where I didn't think the supporting cast was solid. Right. There have been films where the lead cast in some of his later films have not been, but the supporting cast is always solid.
2: I was going to say, I could easily see Minetti being on law and order. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, like he just fits that role. He knows what his parameters are and he just plays it to the best that he can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He sells that role. There's absolutely no doubt. So yeah, I agree. So Anyone else on the cast we want to talk about before we get to? I know what I know is usually Jackson's two favorite things, which are the cinematography and the
2: score. So, yeah. the, I was going <laughs> to say the other actor I wanted to bring up was the Doctor Kavanaugh, Paolo Bonacelli. Ah, uh, and when I looked at him, I was like, he's pretty good. He's a little bit more uh, sedate. He's a little bit more staid. But when I looked at his filmography, I'm like, I know that guy. I know that guy. There's where I know him from, and that's from Sallow. Oh. Oh 120 days of Sodom he plays the duke. Really? Uh, he plays the duke in uh in Salo. So he's the guy that wow. all these depravity and the sexual things are happening for him. He's the guy sitting in the chair being hmm. fed the grapes as this is happening. But he was also in Caligula which Oh sense. gosh. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but to take it 25 years later he was in Mission Impossible 3. Really? So, yeah, he, he, his his complete uh, filmography is maybe fifteen films, but the ones he's in, you'll probably be able to pick out.
1: I haven't seen Mission Impossible three in probably fifteen years, so I'd have to go back and look no, at it.
2: I think he's probably Man on Bridge or something. <laughs> or something <like>
1: that. <laughs> I always found it funny you brought up Caligula. It was always funny. It was either I can't remember if it was Helen Mirren or. Whether it was Malcolm McDowell, I can't, or maybe it was even John Gilgood. One member of the cast always claimed they had no idea that, that was a that was a um, smut film. That was a Bob Guccione like penthouse thing. They said they thought it was just a straight up film. They Had no idea.
2: Now, well, I, I think uh, Guccione was pretty good with it. All the uh, orgy scenes and all that sort of stuff. He kind of shot when the main actors were gone
1: uh so maybe they're telling the truth i always thought they, they were have. lying but i was trying to justify it
2: or, i was gonna say or they were interested spectators <laughs>
1: <laughs> or They could have been, oh.
2: oh
1: man yeah. Yeah, uh, let's get so, let's get our mind out of the gutter let's get our minds out of the gutter yeah cinematography and editing jackson you go with this as i know how much you love talking about cinematography um, don't, don't, now don't run off and become another Argento where it's all about cinematography. You ignore the actors, but that, that can be dangerous. So, but anyway, what did you think of the cinematography
0: here, Jackson? I thought it was really cool. He does some really interesting things, not only cinematography, and there are some really cool moving camera moments, but I think the editing is what was really interesting to me because it feels like it's edited out of time at some point, sort of like he's rearranging stuff like, uh, I don't know, memento style, mm-hmm. um, and that was really interesting to me. He also seems to use a lot more, like, quick insert shots to really, like, up the tension. Uh, I noticed that in the horror scenes. He seems to to throw those in. Um, interesting use of CGI. Uh, not bad for 1996, but certainly interesting uh, in the way it mixes with the, the crisp cinematography, that kind of, like, weird, lumpy, textualist CGI. But, um... Yeah, I don't know. I thought overall this isn't his most visually striking work, but it's Argento. It's never going to look bad. Yeah. Bill, what about you?
2: I really liked uh, the cinematography, considering it's 1996. you got to put that in that context. Right. Um, they used to CGI. One of the listeners of LOTC, when I posted I was watching this, Ian Urza said, I think this was the first Italian film to use CGI.
0: And it I was? looked it up. Yeah.
2: And as far as I understood, it was. So yeah. good on them. It was kind of yeah. weird. Out of nowhere, you see the pills going down her throat. You're like, wow. But yeah. the, there's the one scene where one of the women are being sexually raped. And uh, a bullet goes through the yeah. uh, mouth. through the And you're like, that is pretty cool. Yeah. I, I really liked that. Um, it reminded me of some of the Stuart Gordon CGI stuff. It was similar to that. Mm-hmm. But um, I liked it. Especially the scene—it's a rough scene where Asia Argento is getting sexually assaulted in the grotto. Mm-hmm. But when she's laying there, and she all of a sudden gets the Stendhal syndrome, and all the uh, the artwork and the graffiti and all the tagged work on the walls all of a sudden kind of come to life. Yeah. And, and at one point, one of the—I don't know if it's a bear or a creature—comes off the wall and comes. I thought that was really well shot. Mm-hmm. And and then and then when you see Kreitzman getting kicked down into the waterfall, and you see it kind of cascading his body down. I, I thought that was really well done.
1: Absolutely. The, the cinematographer for this um, uh, was Giuseppe Rotundo. This was his last feature film. He retired the next year. But he's got a really interesting cinematography, uh, background in cinematography. Like, he did um, All That Jazz. He did Popeye for... <laughs> You know, he did with uh, Robin Williams. He did The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Wow. You know, yeah, and he did what I think is an underrated film, especially cinema, uh, from a standpoint of cinematography. He did Wolf with Mike Nichols. The Jack Nicholson. Film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is, regardless of how you feel about that film, and I really like it. It looks amazing.
2: Yeah, lots of good use of darks and lights and grays yes. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so this guy had
1: an interesting career. Unfortunately, he retired, but uh, I thought it was was really well done. Is it the kind of jump? And and Jackson, this may be where you're coming from, because we watched Cat of Ninetales, which is ably shot, but not many things that kind of make your jaw drop. But then we jumped from Cat of Ninetales to Deep Red. Yeah. And when you get to Deep Red, Argento has now hit his stride. Yeah, his so just...
2: Such you a br- color, everything. Such a brilliant film. That is my favorite all-time Giallo. Oh, it's just amazing! Really? Wow, that is a, that is a great it. scene. That that uh, scene where they do the arm wrestling, I laugh every time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that is an absolute cheat. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: love
1: that scene. That was yeah, but the colors and everything are so great. You know, it, it, so it hasn't, it isn't that kind of jump, but I still think it's really interesting. I do think there's some interesting use of color here and so forth and so yeah you can definitely see that argento's like playing with the cgi and and knowing what i know about argento he probably was more concerned about his cgi shots than he was anything else uh, just because that's kind of where his head's at but i thought it worked really well really really well so let's talk about the music jackson what did you yeah. think? You're the musician here. Come on. I don't know, Bill, if you're a musician or not. So. I'm, n-
2: I'm not, but I do appreciate it. Having listened to Dave Waugh a few times,
0: I picked it up even more. Wonderful. Jackson, what about, what do you think of the mu- music? Uh, I thought it was great. This is the Neo Morricone, right? Yep. yep. Uh, one of my favorite composers of all time people forget that he did uh, Argento movies and the, he did like the animal trilogy and he did some of his later work. Um, so, and obviously he did other horror, like the thing, but um, I feel like he's underappreciated in the horror community. Um, I will say, uh, I feel like Argento kind of goes back to his habit of putting intense music and in sound design and scenes where nothing is really happening at that point. Like when we have Marie alone in the museum and nothing happens for about two minutes, but the music is going at full blast, and and you get all the sound design and stuff. Kind of reminded me of *Cat of Nine Tales*. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever they're doing investigation, there's just random like goblin music blaring, and all he's doing is like reading papers. Uh, kind of reminded me of that, but that's just another trademark of Argento. You come to expect it. Uh, I thought it was really cool. An interesting fact I was reading, and of course, you know, you can't really uh, trust 100% the IMDb trivia, but I, I looked at it because I was interested. Apparently, his score, uh, if you play parts of the score backwards and forwards, it's the same. So it's kind of like... I,
2: I heard that as well, but yeah. is it's it supposed to be like Sgt. Pepper's where you, have the, where you have to sit and play it back and forwards, I don't know.
0: Maybe I was thinking it was just like he was just trying to really show off He was like I'm such a great composer people are gonna discover this at some <laughs> point They're gonna play it backwards and be like it's the same tune, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a cool concept I don't know that that really adds anything to the movie that it really comes through that much, but uh, I did I did think it was really uh, a great score uh, Didn't take away from the movie, but it did add something so that's that's what um, that's where I come in on it I don't think it's his most iconic score I don't think it's my favorite from him, but it was solid. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the score. I always found it interesting that Argento's
1: go-to musicians for his score are either Ennio Morricone or Goblin. Yeah, two two <laughs> different yeah. sides of the spectrum, aren't those they? Those are two very different music... Yeah, those are definitely two different approaches uh, to film. Yeah, it's... I I don't know. That's But anyway... All righty. So what else do we want to talk about, fellas, before we wrap this one up?
2: I was going to say, did you, I wanted to talk about, if I was the only one that thought this, the movie had like two acts where the first hour and 25 minutes where she gets raped and she uh, uh, confronts her rapist and kicks him down. And if you finished it right there, that could have been a universal pictures film, Mm -hmm. but then that last 25 minutes kind of took it off a bit and I've, I've read reviews and heard video reviews and things, and some people don't like the fact that it went on for the 25 minutes afterwards, because it was almost its own little secondary movie to the yeah. first movie. Almost an addendum to it. Yeah. But, I mean, it did add some confusion, but it also kind of tied it together. It I think it was necessary, but... I think they could have blended it a little, little bit better like that whole thing about the yeah. the boy toy love affair and all that and mm-hmm. it, it looked it felt a bit wishy-washy to me but the very last 5 minutes was very very strong. So
1: yeah, now I'm right there with you. That's one of the reasons I thought I thought that you know after, you know, she kills uh, Alfredo, then I I do think it kind of meanders a bit. I, it didn't it wasn't as strong. Yeah, the last five minutes, they they work fine. But I don't think you needed to go on and on that long. I think it could have been edited down in half, and it would have been a lot stronger.
0: I don't know. Jackson, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I did get bored in some of the scenes with Marie, her, her French, like, new boyfriend. Uh, there's a scene where they're sitting in the park. And they're debating the, the they're, they're she eats goose liver, I guess. And then she's like, mmm, it's good. Mmm, it's tasty. And I'm like, okay, all right, come on. Let's get to the point here. Uh, and then it's implied that they, they make love in the park, which is odd. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that it went on a little long. Then there's a part with her and Marco where she's just kind of talking to Marco. And it, it's, it, it did go on a little long at the end of the second act, going into the third act. But... The conclusion of the film was fantastic when she finally snaps and we see how crazy she is. There's a scene where she's walking through the street and I don't know what version you watched. I'm sure that the English dub, which is the default on Shudder, what I saw is different than like the subtitle version on YouTube, perhaps. But um, she's wandering through the streets after she's just killed Marco and she's like, got to go to the dry cleaners, got to go pick up my my coffee or whatever. She's just talking about random chores. And I was like, oh, man, she has lost it. Um, so that, that was what pushed the ending for Good to Great to me, I, I guess. Just, just realizing how, how crazy she had gone. Um, I don't know how I feel about the ending. I don't know if, if you guys picked up on this, but the final image of her being held down by this police officers kind of made me feel uncomfortable because it reminded me of the rape yeah. scene. The yeah. way it was framed kind of looked like the rape scene, uh, how her, her shirt is torn a little bit, but, um, you know, whatever that, that may have just been Argenta trying to draw some parallels. I, I thought it was Argento
1: trying to say that, you know, she was going her trauma had led to her being um traumatized yet again. That mm-hmm. it's kind of a vicious cycle. I I, I sure. guess that's where he was going because I, I don't know. But uh uh yeah, the the yeah, I think you could have edited it out maybe ten minutes, you know, yeah. and, and it would have been a lot stronger. Uh,
2: I found that scene where they were uh, getting it on in the park actually quite amusing. Cause at one point he's starting to caress her shoulder and take her shirt off or whatever. And she's like, Oh no, stop. Let me do it. Yeah. And you're, I was like, Oh my God. really? Are we going? Are we going? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It was
1: a little strange.
2: I, I, I just thought, okay, that's her dominance kicking in there. Maybe that kind of is behind the motivation of the character. I don't know. Yeah.
1: All righty. Well, are we ready to rate and give our recommendations on this one, gentlemen?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I was just going to say, I, I did read that Argeno did a film in 2004 called The Card Player. Yes. Which which is apparently a sequel or a sequel in spirit to this yes. film.
1: Yeah, well, I thought it was funny because I read that, it, yeah, that he wanted his daughter back to star in the sequel. And she was, quote, unquote, unavailable. Hmm. <laughs>
0: I thought... That's interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe she watched the movie and didn't like it. I don't maybe, know. Maybe I don't know.
2: You never know he, what's going he, on. He couldn't twist his daughter's arm a little bit to get into the film?
1: Uh, yeah, she ter- she apparently turned it down. She said she wanted to do something else. She was unavailable,
0: so. And I don't person, know, you know. The person playing her character, Stefania Roca, uh, never never heard of Oh, she's on she's done a lot of TV, but Yeah, it's it's literally a a sequel. That's interesting. I don't know where they were they would go with this. I didn't even know that uh, the story could could go anywhere from there.
1: I haven't heard great things about. I haven't seen it, but I have not heard. Oh
0: yeah, it's got a two point four on Letterboxd.
1: Wow. Yeah, I've heard I've heard uh, Ryan Turek and others kind of say that they thought it was boring. But anyway, who knows? Yeah, who knows? All right. So, Bill, what would you rate this on
2: a scale one to ten? On a scale of 1 to 10, I would give this probably about a 7. Okay. Uh, I think it's infinitely watchable, and there are interesting points of views. My own personal connection to the film is, is I suffer from vertigo, mm. so I can somehow relate to that feeling of not knowing why, but all of a sudden you feel the dizziness and the falling. So at, at that point, I was like, Okay, but I've never had that walking through the Royal Ontario Museum of Art or anything. You know, like, I've never had that happen. So gotcha. um, I would say it's worth a watch. And for those people that are really into the giallo genre or into Argento or into, like, the crime serial, or if you're flat out just a completist, it, it's worth it. And you could do a lot worse with your hour and a half. 20 minutes, you could probably shut off. But yeah. that's, an, that's an editing issue. But I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Jackson, what about you, buddy?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm coming in right right around there. I'm gonna add a seven out of ten, and the reason it's not uh, higher for me is just because I don't feel like I'll be rewatching this anytime soon. Uh, this is not one that you're just gonna want to pop on for some easy watching. It's it's very emotionally taxing, I feel like, and uh, it's it's more like the Nightingale than Suspiria for me. Uh, maybe not quite that extreme, but um, yeah, I, seven out of ten. I would recommend you stream it. I mean, I don't know what the quality's like on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is on Shudder. That is an option if you have Shudder. Or you can just watch right. it on YouTube. You know, whatever. Watch it in whatever way you can if you're interested. Definitely, if you are an Argento fan, you'll like this because it's just more from him. And uh, it, it's not a bad one, but it's not my favorite.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not too far behind you, gentlemen. I, I think I'm at about like a 6.5 around there. This did make my top 10 list of 1996 when I worked through the horror films of 1996. It was at a 10 out of 10. Um, on my list. Um Now that being said, you know the '90s. I mean, there's a possibility the dentist could make a top ten list in the '90s. So.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. In <laughs> fact, it did make a top ten list for I, one of me.
1: I am sure it did. It's just you know, it's the '90s were kind of hit or miss. But, say,
2: are we are we bringing up Corbin Burnson again? i know he's a
1: nice guy but i'm not saying he's done the best work you know um i did like him i did like him in psych as the dad other than that i'm not so sure um but it's yeah it's on shutter it's on youtube um i think you can rent it for like 2.99 or 3.99 on amazon i do think that's worth it especially if you're an argento fan so i think we're all recommending it um We want to thank Bill uh, for being on. We also want to thank our Patreons. And uh, you can become a Patreon, too, for only $2.50 a month if you go there to support us and more uh, specifically to support a uh, young filmmaker who wants to make horror movies one day. And so, Bill, where can they find you online, buddy?
2: They can find me online every other week on Land of the Creeps with the amazing Greg Amortis, Greg Morgan, and Dr. Shock Dave Becker, Uh, I was recently on an episode of Real Talk with Wes, Tommy, and Gabe, where we talked about cult films, which I had a lot of fun with that. And I was just recently on an episode of Top Ten with Kyle and Mike, two young podcasters, where I talked about my ten favorite sports films. So uh, find me here, there. And I'm on with our good friend Nathan Bartlebaugh on Phantom Galaxy. Check him out. If you like Maricone. He did an episode with Dave Dave Watt, Dave Roy, on that. So check me out. I'm here, there, and everywhere. Give me a shout. I'm not going to bite your hand, so give me a (laughs) shout. (laughs)
1: There you go. And folks, uh, of course, all of you listening, um, be sure to go on Twitter or on Facebook. Go to Joe Bob's uh, Facebook account or go to Darcy's Twitter account and be sure to lobby them that uh for the next silver bolo award to go toward L O T C. They deserve it. Greg Amortis deserves the Silver Bolo Award, so let's get that for him. And let's
2: let's make Dave Becker the first two time Silver Bolo winner. That's right. He'd Absolutely. be the first two
1: time Silver Bolo Award winner. So yeah, and poor. I mean, they don't even mention Joel's name when they give it to him, but somehow Joel has the Silver Bolo Award. I don't know if that was his
0: consolation. It's only fair. Answer. It's only fair. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> oh, Jackson, where can they find you online, buddy? On Twitter, Matt Kane underscore hero 12. That's K A I N E underscore hero 12. Uh, on the letterbox, Matt Kane hero. That's one word. I have been watching Mario Bava films uh, for the past week. I am five movies in to my 12 movie marathon. So if you want to check out those reviews, you can, you can check those out on letterboxd. Um, I've got a YouTube channel as well, which is also called cane hero. You can find it linked in, in all my bios. And we have our website, father and And we are on Twitter at fathersonhorror
1: uh, father, son, horror, as well as Instagram. And we have a closed Facebook page and you can find me pastor, Matt R, on Twitter and also on Instagram and, and letterboxd. So Next time, uh, we may have one more Argento episode left in us. We'll see. Um, because come October, which we've already, this is our third episode we have in the can. We've got two dropping this week, and this will drop in a, a
0: week after that. So, But we're getting close to October, Jackson. It's, it's Halloween time, baby. So Yes, it's the spookiest to- time of the year. And uh, you can bet that the Father and Son Watch Horror podcast is going to act accordingly.
2: Oh, so, we're going to have fun. Uh, uh, do we get to look forward to a Pumpkinhead review? Uh, maybe Ooh, we'll that see. could be
0: fun we shall see we
1: shall see I, I'm just looking forward I know that uh, we've already covered the Friday 13th series but I did order the Friday 13th box set uh, from Scream Factory and this week it was released that they have found and restored not at 4k unfortunately they found and restored the edited scenes from Friday 13th part 2 all the gore cuts nice. are back they're all that's, back in the that's... movie
2: that's all the great work by Justin Beam. He did it. Absolutely. They they found
1: out that the special effects uh, supervisor, the guy who took Savini's place <coughs> for part two, he still had all the scenes on VHS. Oh, wow. <laughs> Imagine those just sitting around in your house and you're like, well, these are my old home he, movies. He had one VHS tape and it was because he showed it to Greg Nicotero that they found out about it. Greg Nicotero ratted him out and said, oh, he's got the stuff because Paramount doesn't have it. This guy had it. So... They're getting all that footage back in there. I cannot wait to see that. We may have to revisit Friday the 13th Part 2, Jackson. It is my favorite. So, all right. That being said, anything else for the good of the order? If not, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye. And remember, carps don't wear masks, so don't go kissing any. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember, the family that watches horror together slays together. See ya.